This podcast is made possible by Cocovia, now introducing memory and focus. This new brain health supplement is a unique blend of plant-based ingredients made with Coco Pro Plus, proprietary botanical blend, clinically proven lutein, and naturally sourced caffeine. It's specially designed to keep you focused, boost memory, and support brain function with a single capsule daily. Learn more at CocoVia.com. Do you remember what it was like to be a teenager? Today's adolescents face a lot more challenges than we did. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. COVID pandemic has made a very difficult situation even worse. Young people who were already feeling anxious or depressed really suffered from social isolation. Matt Richtel's extraordinary series for the New York Times describes the conditions leading to the crisis. In one, he writes that hundreds of suicidal teens sleep in emergency rooms every night. His latest book is titled Inspired, Understanding Creativity. He brings this insight to offer hope for parents and struggling teens. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, Coffee Drinkers Live Longer. That's the conclusion from a study of Britain's published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Researchers analyzed data from more than 170,000 participants in the UK Biobank between 2009 and 2018. People who drank any amount of coffee regularly, even those who added sugar, were 16 to 20 percent less likely to die during the study than those who didn't drink it. Those who sweetened their coffee added about a teaspoon of sugar on average. If they drank between one and a half and three and a half cups daily, as many did, they were about 30% less likely to die during the follow-up than those who avoided coffee. Not enough people used artificial sweetener to draw any firm conclusions about its health effects. Instant, ground, and decaf coffee provided similar statistics. This was an observational study, so it doesn't show cause-and-effect relationships, but the numbers are large enough to be compelling. The researchers are not encouraging people to start drinking coffee for health reasons. Nonetheless, they conclude that moderate consumption of unsweetened and sugar-sweetened coffee was associated with lower risk for death. Gout is a painful inflammatory condition caused by excessive levels of uric acid in the blood. When crystals of uric acid form in joints, the pain can be excruciating. It's estimated that more than 8 million people in the United States suffer from gout. Could a simple vitamin lower levels of uric acid and reduce the likelihood of developing a painful gout attack? Researchers followed more than 14,000 male doctors for a decade. They were participants in the Physician's Health Study too. The men were randomized to receive either 500 milligrams of vitamin C daily or placebo. The doctors in the vitamin C arm of the study were less likely to be diagnosed with gout. Animal research has demonstrated that vitamin C can reduce uric acid levels, which may explain why this common supplement could be beneficial against this painful inflammatory condition. Blueberries are noted for their brain-boosting effects due to their high levels of anthocyanidins and proanthocyanidins. 
cranberries are also loaded with these red and blue plant pigments. Now a study shows that older people who consume cranberries are protecting their brains. The researchers recruited 60 healthy people between 50 and 80 years old for a three-month-long placebo-controlled trial. All the volunteers took extensive cognitive tests at the beginning and end of the study. In addition, the scientists got images of their brains and did biochemical analyses of their blood. Those in the study group got freeze-dried cranberry powder equivalent to a cup of fresh cranberries daily. By the end of the study, they had higher blood levels of polyphenols, while there was no change for those consuming placebo powder. In addition, those getting cranberry powder performed significantly better on tests of visual memory. Their brain images showed better blood flow to related brain regions. They did not have notable improvements in other cognitive tests, though, and the scientists do not know if consuming cranberries will help people avoid dementia. Their LDL cholesterol levels were also lower. Ketamine, originally sold as an injectable anesthetic called Ketalar, has been on the market since 1970. It's still used for this purpose, especially when surgeons must operate on patients in severe pain. But ketamine is getting a lot more attention lately as an unusual antidepressant. In much smaller doses, the drug appears to have fast and long-lasting effects, especially for people at risk of suicide. Scientists have been puzzled by the mechanism of action of ketamine because it does not work as a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, the way drugs like Prozac do. Now researchers in Israel have identified how ketamine might alter neuronal activity. The drug appears to stabilize potassium channels in glutamate-sensitive nerve cells. The lead investigator says, quote, in-depth knowledge of how antidepressants work might lead to a better understanding of depression and help improve existing treatments. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The last couple of years have been hard for everyone. Social isolation and fear of infection have taken a toll, especially on adolescents. Anxiety, depression, self-harm, and many other mental health problems are challenging young people. What is happening with American teens? Our guest today has been investigating this second pandemic for the last year. He's talked with lots of teens and their parents about their challenges. This conversation covers some topics that may be disturbing. We'll be talking about anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. If this will be too difficult for you at this time, we suggest you may wish to listen to the podcast at a later time. We're talking today with Matt Richtel, a journalist for the New York Times. He was awarded the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting for a Series on Distracted Driving. It led to a book titled A Deadly Wandering. We talked to him earlier about his book on the immune system titled An Elegant Defense. Matt's most recent series in the New York Times addressed the mental health crisis affecting American teenagers. Matt Richtel, welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. 
Well, thank you so much for having me back. I'm, I feel really grateful. Matt, I, I have to be very honest with you. You're one of the most exceptional journalists that we've ever had the privilege of interviewing. I mean, we didn't talk to you about your, your series, the deep dive into the hazards of device distraction while driving. You got a Pulitzer National Reporting Award for that work. But we did talk to you about your book, Elegant Defense, the extraordinary new science of the immune system. You did an unbelievable job taking on this very complicated system, the immune system, and and making it understandable. And then you did a series for the New York Times about spreading fungal infections, candida auris, and again, fabulous, fabulous work. And now your extraordinary series about adolescent mental health. I mean, really, sir, what led you to delve into this complex problem in such an extraordinary way and for so long? Well, first, if I'm being really honest where I'm at, I'm just so moved by your kind remarks. So thank you and full stop. Um, Here's the answer. It's been apparent for some years that mental health issues have become significant for a generation of young people. But early last year, so now in, I guess that's 2021, as I began to look into what I might tackle next, I came across a set of statistics that slapped me in the forehead and made me realize There was not just an excuse, but a necessity to write about it. And this is what the set of statistics were. It wasn't merely that adolescent anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation, non-suicidal self-harm and suicide were rising. It was that around the same time those went up, there was a drop in all of the risks that ailed my generation. Binge drinking, drunk driving injury and death, cigarette smoking, teen pregnancy, and illicit drugs. And that's even accounting for opiates and weed. In other words, what I stumbled onto was a profound shift in the risk confronting adolescents. And I was like, wait a second, this is bigger than mental health. This is a monster public health story. Matt, just how big a problem is it? Well, is the problem you're asking about the shift in risk or because that is one problem in and of itself, or is the problem you're asking about the one regarding mental health? I was thinking primarily about the one regarding mental health, but we should also talk about the shift. The reason I say that is because the shift underscores why we haven't kept up as a society. So that is a set of problems in and of itself. I'll hit on the mental health piece, but it didn't happen in a vacuum. And because it happened and there was a shift that our society our society was built to tackle a certain set of problems among youth, and then mental health rose and we have not kept up. So let me go to the problems with mental health, but I don't. I want to underscore that there are two different issues. Am I making sense with that? Yes. Okay. So mental health. 
How big is the issue? A more complicated question, or maybe you understand implicitly that it's very complicated. Here's why. We weren't always measuring anxiety and depression. So determining how much those have spiked is challenging. Less challenging is to see the spike in emergency room visits for self-harm, which have risen some 60%. And I believe that time frame is 2012 to 2020, but you'd have to see my articles to get the precise number. And suicide from it, for people ages 10 to 24 has risen 60%. And I believe that span is 2007 to 2018. Again, please check my numbers from the story. In short, significant, significant increases. And they are shadowed by or um, accompanied by rises in anxiety and depression. Now, Matt, a lot of our listeners are thinking, wait a minute, that's before the pandemic. Correct. This, this has been happening for a long time, but the pandemic made it worse, right? Yes, and 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 it's very much worth noting that that is why those statistics stuck out at me when I began this story. There was a presumption um, and a conversation that COVID was causing a whole bunch of um, challenges for young people. In point of fact, COVID only intensified a set of circumstances that was already at play. In To put another way, this is not a COVID story. This is a generational story. And Matt, I think it's worth underscoring that it is, in fact, a generational story because you're talking about people as young as 10, and right. and and although we haven't talked about it yet, I know that it's also a problem that is affecting young people in college. So people as old as 20, 23. Right. Um, you know, if you look at the period of time we're talking about when the numbers began to show up around 2000, 2009, that's already that encompasses a, a huge uh, group of young people. Um, and we probably may, I, I mean, I'd ask you, maybe it's worth just trying to define what adolescence is and, and how we think about this group. Is it, may I just define some terms here? Please do. So adolescence is um, a period that we used to think of as sort of starting at puberty. And if you go back some 150 years, 100 years, it was a relatively short period. Um, I mean, I, I'm laughing because it sort of went like this. Puberty, um, uh, would you like to work at the farm or the factory? And which of these two people do you want to marry? It was short and somewhat simple. Now, a whole bunch of things have happened. First of all, adolescence has gotten much longer. Why has it gotten much longer? Well, what that old image of adolescence suggests, uh, rightfully so, is that there's a way in which adolescence is an economic phenomenon. You go from being cared for by your family to learning to care for yourself and to be able to support a family. Now we live in a much more complicated world with a lot more training involved. Does that make sense? 
why adolescence as a period of economic training would grow much longer? Yes. Indeed. And much more complex, much more identity-seeking, much more discovery. But there's another piece, and it's vital to understanding what's happening now, and that is that puberty in some ways has become disconnected from this experience. What is puberty? Well, broadly speaking, simply speaking, it's, it's as the body prepares to reproduce, um, it takes on those functions. But it does a lot of other things inside the brain. And one of the things it does is that it signals the brain to be aware of social and hierarchical information. It awakens the brain to questions like, who am I in a larger context? Where do I fit in? Why is that so vital? Well, in that economic conversation, you're going from sort of being this generic creature inside your home to figuring out where you fit in in the world. And punchline, since about, oh, a hundred years and maybe more, the age of puberty has been falling. Why has it been falling? We don't exactly know, but it looks like more nutrition, maybe more artificial light is signaling to bodies that they're ready to reproduce in ways that they weren't uh, um, several hundred years ago. And after the break, I will explain to you why that is so material when it comes to mental health. You're listening to Matt Richtel. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times. His most recent series in the Times addressed the mental health crisis affecting American teenagers. Matt Rechtel is the author of several books, including An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, A Tale in Four Lots. His most recent book is Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. After the break, we'll find out why earlier puberty could have an impact on mental health. If we banished social media and smartphones, even in the unlikely event that we could do that, would the problem disappear? Matt Richtel reviews the science on these devices and their links to kids' mental health. He shares the story of M, an adolescent in Milwaukee. It's a difficult situation, but turns out it's not unusual. There are nowhere near enough inpatient facilities to take care of the people who need them. How did we end up in this situation? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, introducing a new product called Memory and Focus. More information at cocovia.com. 
Also by Gaia Herbs. Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. Learn more at GAIAherbs.com. We're talking about the mental health crisis facing American adolescents and their families. This challenging situation began prior to the pandemic, but COVID has made everything worse. This conversation covers some topics that may be disturbing. We'll be talking about anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. If this will be too difficult for you at this time, we suggest you might want to listen to the podcast at a later time. If you or anyone you know is in crisis, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. Our guest is Matt Richtel a journalist for the New York Times. He was awarded the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting for a series on distracted driving. The resulting book is titled A Deadly Wandering, A Mystery, A Landmark Investigation, and the Astonishing Science of Attention in the Digital Age. Matt's most recent series in the New York Times addressed the mental health crisis affecting American teenagers. You'll find links to his series from our website, Matt Richtel's most recent book is Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. Matt, you've described the falling age at puberty, and this is something that we have seen in the medical literature. We know that uh, young people are reaching puberty at younger ages, but that's biological. Why does it matter for mental health? Yeah. So when puberty sets in, it is biological. It is also neurobiological. And a lot is happening in the brain. And I alluded to before the break that you get highly awakened and attuned and sensitized to social information. So that's happening earlier. And suddenly, in this era in particular, we are gobsmacked by social information. We are facing an onslaught of it. It's easy to call it social media, but it's so much more than that. It's competitive information about schools and about the athletic industrial complex that has you worrying if you'll even make the team at age 10. It's the noise in the world about Uh, whether you'll make it, whatever that means. It's the social information that comes on the news. All of that starts to get louder and louder inside the pubescent brain. But wait a second, there's a catch. Puberty's happening earlier, but the part of the brain that makes sense of all that information, the prefrontal cortex and the executive controls aren't developing any faster than they used to. So suddenly you have a mismatch between a highly sensitive brain, a ton of information coming in, and no good regulator. And that's a problem. Well, a lot of people think, oh, it's it's social media. If we just got rid of the cell phones, if we got rid of the tablets, if we got rid of all that input that has really exploded in the last decade, well, then maybe the problem would go away. 
Joe, you're raising two really good questions. One is, is it the cell phone and social media? And the second is, couldn't we just get it to all go away? Let me address the second point first. No, we cannot get it to all go away because this is our economy. There are It's a monster way information travels, how creativity and innovation happen, how markets move, how investors work, how school is taught. So it's not practical to think this is going to go away. And then to the first point, isn't this just caused by the iPhone or the phone? I'm not picking on the iPhone and social media. The answer gets more complicated here. So there are researchers who will say, look, there's clear growth in mental health problems that correlate precisely with the rise of all these devices. That is proof. It's not exactly proof. What it is is an indication of a relationship that I have to pull apart a little bit more carefully. Um, So should I go into the science on that? I think we would like to hear more about the science. Tell us. So here's what's going on, is that the research on the role of social media per se is extremely conflicted. And when researchers look at the mental health of heavy social media users, they find that some perform less well or have less uh, mind, uh, well, good well-being and others are doing better. So that alone doesn't explain it. I think what the research begins to coalesce around, and it goes to the very beginnings of our conversation, is that the the iPhone and the Android phone and the devices and the iPads and the tablets signaled an inflection point in lifestyle that led to very significant shifts in what young people and how young people were spending their time and specifically sleeping less, getting less exercise, and in particularly in a pastoral, non-competitive way, spending less time in person, feeling more isolated and more lonely. In other words, what this screen time did, it appears, is displace activities we know to help a developing brain. Matt, let's get very specific because I think our listeners are, are you know, they're, they're, they're hearing about the, the big picture, but sometimes as a journalist, you know that they need to have an example, what it's like, and you have described M. Can you give us a quick overview of M's experience? So M takes the pronoun they. M is, I spent more than a year with M and their family in a Minnesota suburb. And what struck me about M was that M's experience and M's family's experience track what's happening societally. M's father, apropos of a generation ago or two, got his girlfriend pregnant in their senior year in high school. This was what public health worried about at the time. He was outdoors. He was uh, congregating with friends. Congregating is not a metaphor here. He was, you know, hanging out with them and his girlfriend. He got her pregnant. 
He also didn't do that well in school, although he went on to become a PhD, but no one ever called it ADHD or attention problems. He just was sort of living a less surveilled life. Now along comes M, and M is living a very specific set of challenges consistent with their generation. M's first crush was on an anime serial killer named Genocidal Jack. And um, I better say what all those words mean. An anime serial killer is a character in a Japanese anime, a sort of whimsical girl named Genocidal Jack with a long red tongue who kills her classmates. And M is spending a lot of time playing a video game and then watching the Japanese anime and professes to fall in love during COVID with this character, also is feeling exceedingly lonely, is depressed, doesn't feel they can keep up with what's going on in the world, begins self-harming, describes it as a way to make the emotional pain go away, orders a set of box cutters on Amazon that are shaped like kitten's paws and cuts themselves. And by the by, the parents eventually find out and have to confront this issue with M. It sounds so difficult. It sounds so awful from M's perspective, but also from their parents' perspective. No less than petrifying for the parents and very confusing for M, who vacillates as I talk to them between um, feeling certitude about who they are and what their beliefs are and withdrawn and angry and, and, and anxious and not wanting to be around and telling me at one point, I, I'm going to start cutting again. I know it. Next year at this time, I'll be in the hospital, I'm sure. Which, you know, which is a, a frightening prospect for M and, as I said, for the family. And as you have written, M is an intelligent person and yet is experiencing a lot of anxiety about being able to handle school. And Matt, M is not an unusual case. I mean, there are a lot of M's out there. And you've written a piece in the New York Times in which you talk about hundreds of suicidal teens in hospital ERs sleeping every night in those halls, in those waiting rooms. I mean, this is a crisis. Joe, once again, we're on the same wavelength, really, because you took the words out of my mouth. I was about to say, M's not an outlier. M is the story. And as this series has emerged the last few weeks, the number of emails I've been getting saying, you just wrote about my son or daughter. You wrote about the anxiety in our family. And then and the number of clinicians and doctors saying, I see it every day. And yes, that is what's happened. They're winding up in emergency rooms because there is n- either there's not good preventative care or parents don't know how to find it 
or it's too expensive. And these kids are winding up in emergency rooms and the emergency rooms are duty bound to keep them because you can't let a kid who could kill him or herself or themselves go home at night. You can't. And there's nowhere else for these young people to go because we don't have the treatment systems in place. And this goes to the very early part of the conversation when I said, which problem are we asking about? The mental health one or the one about changing risk? This is the changing risk part. Society has not kept up. And so we've got an inability to treat all these young people and grapple with their issues. Well, in fact, in one of your articles, you point out that the capacity to treat young people in inpatient facilities, which is what they need when they're suicidal, has dropped dramatically even over the last yep. several years. 30%, a 30% drop, I think, from 2012 to 2020. Again, please check my facts, but um, that's what, if memory serves, th- there's actually a good reason for that. Uh, there was an, a well-intentioned effort by society to reduce the number of what's called congregant settings, places where kids would be out of the home. And while those were reduced, the, the mental health issues rose, leaving a vacuum. Um, I, I do want to point out that one of the things I'm discovering and, and will write about in future articles in this series is that there are some tactics that can be used. And here I speak of of therapies like CBT and DBT that are proving helpful and may not need inpatient care, but we don't have them widely available yet. And we also are relying far too heavily on medications as stopgap measures that wind up being permanent, given that these medications are not well understood in young people. Matt, how did we end up here? How is it possible that in the 21st century, we can't manage to adequately treat not just teenagers, but anyone with mental illness? I mean, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, whether we don't have enough therapists, we don't have enough resources. And I'm going to be honest. I mean, I got my start in neuropharmacology. And over 45 years ago, my mentors thought we were going to have great drugs for depression and schizophrenia and anxiety. And the drugs we have suck. I'm sorry. They're terrible. They, they may work for some people, but they're not that effective. So we're in a boatload of trouble, and I don't see an answer anytime soon. Now, I, I know that sounds kind of grim, but you've seen it up close and personal by interviewing the kids, their parents, doctors, therapists. Joe, finally, we're not precisely on the same wavelength because weirdly, I see this as a moment of hope. And and while I 100% agree the medications aren't there, I see that what we're doing in this moment as unmasking a problem, and it is an opportunity to really think about how we want to address it as a society. And the reason, in part, we don't have answers is this snuck up on us in some ways. Now, you can argue that's not true, um, but it has come in an apocal sense over, you know, big periods of time. It's come pretty quickly. You know, we we did have different problems 30 years ago. And I think we have a chance 
to give young people coping skills at an earlier age that may wind up having them forego the crashes in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that were the stuff of midlife crises. I actually think we have a shot, but we got to own it right now, and that means change. Well, I am thrilled. <laughs> I am thrilled to hear that you are hopeful. And when we come back after this break, I also want to talk about your new book about creativity and innovation and how that might also give us a path out of the mess that we are in. So let's talk about the future and see where that hope lies. If you or anyone you know is in crisis, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. We're talking with Matt Richtel, a New York Times reporter who was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for his series on distracted driving. His most recent articles are titled, It's Life or Death, The Mental Health Crisis Among U.S. Teens. On the phone alone, teens in distress are swamping pediatricians. Hundreds of suicidal teens sleep in emergency rooms every night. In light of the shooting at Uvalde, these problems seem more urgent than ever. Matt Richtel has written several books, including An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, and his most recent, Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. After the break... Matt describes some tactics that might be useful. Unfortunately, it can be hard to find a therapist who works with cognitive behavioral therapy or related techniques, or one who works specifically with teenagers. Clearly, young people need coping skills, but shouldn't we be providing all of our adolescents with those skills, not just those in crisis? Is there a connection between crisis? And creativity. Matt tells us about his new book on creativity and how we can help people embrace new ways of solving problems. Is climate change contributing to adolescent anxiety? We'll get Matt's message on how to move forward with hope. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic supplements. These supplements are made in the USA with high-quality, sustainably sourced ingredients. Originally developed in Germany, Kaya Biotics offers three different formulations with 15 carefully selected strains of bacteria. These are designed to increase the diversity of your gut flora and support your immune system. More information at kayabiotics.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, introducing its new memory and focus product. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants 
to deliver nature's vitality. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. Learn more at GAIAherbs.com. We've been talking about teens in distress. How can parents, teachers, and friends provide support? Can we find creative new ways to break old patterns and discover coping skills? We are talking with Matt Richtel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The New York Times. Matt Richtel has written several books, including An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, and his most recent, Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. Matt, you've suggested that there are some tactics that could be helpful, even though they're currently underused. Could you tell us more about those, please? You mentioned, for example, CBT. That stands for? Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And you mentioned DBT. What's that? Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. And I'm not going to pretend to be experts in these, and you guys may know them better, but let me give you a kind of surface understanding. They have to do with reframing how people see incoming information. And specifically, they really help young people get away, all people get away from what is a really binary vision of the world. I just lost a friend. I'll never have a friend again. I feel sad today. I'll feel sad the rest of my life. There's a way in which that is a catastrophizing function. And it's, we remember we went to, I was talking about the length of adolescence and its complexity. It's easy to understand how a pubescent brain without the regulator confronting a very complex world could want simple answers. And that's, that's a natural instinct. In fact, You could argue it's happening on a societal level where people seek rigid answers, no matter how whimsical or wild those answers may seem, to deal with an onslaught of information and complexity. If you've got a pubescent. I was just going to say, you don't have to be a teenager to be looking for simple answers to a complicated world. Right. And you're all the more susceptible when you're a teenager. And these therapies can help young people reframe that information. And this is how I think about it in a neurobiological sense. In a way, we are giving young people tools that will, that will artificially act as an executive control in their brain, that will artificially stimulate them to think the way their brain might when it fully matures. And that's a gift we could give them and roll out, and I think it will work. Now, of course, it means adequate therapists, adequate resources. Correct. We have to make a commitment. Yeah, that's where uh, I'll let you be a pessimist here, Joe. (laughs) We we uh, that's going to be hard, but it is doable. And to the extent we have the willpower, and I think this is an issue where society will demand it. Sometimes there are issues that just grab our society and take hold. Think of Vietnam. Young people were going to die and it galvanized a society. Young people are going to die now unless we do something. It's the kind of thing that moves us. Now, Matt, you also suggested that we have the opportunity 
to give young people coping skills that will serve them for the rest of their life. Shouldn't we be doing that for all young people and not just the ones who end up in a in an emergency room in a crisis? Yes, full stop. And actually, that's the beauty of all of this kind of thinking and innovative thinking that's going on right now is that this would serve everyone. And it may help people be happier over their lives and create an even more civil society. No brainer. And that's a perfect segue to your brand new book, Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. And I guess the first question I have to to bring these two paths together is in interviewing the adolescents and their families for this series in the New York Times and all of the doctors and therapists and experts in the science of adolescence, what are some of those creative ideas that have kind of bubbled up for you? This idea of the core seat of creativity and a depressed teen to empower and inspire them to be able to reclaim their lives. You know, since this story began, I have gotten an outpouring of emails from people with ideas. Companies, I can't keep up with all of them, virtual therapy clinics, new ways of reframing the issue in young people's minds. And to be honest, um, I've been so overwhelmed reporting this. I haven't looked at specifically at many beyond the ones we just talked about. And the reason I looked at DBT and CBT is because there's enough research done to remark on them now. But it is an outpouring of ideas. Two that come to mind are community groups of parents banding together to try to create support systems. That is an innovation. It's not, you know, it's not the battery powered car, but it is an expression of zeal in an effort, an aha moment to try to heal the community. That's what we do. We respond. It's how we've survived as human beings. So that's exciting. I mean, that gives me hope, but because because I'm a half-empty kind of guy a lot of the time, I have to tell you that in reading your book on creativity, I was saddened to read that we as a society have an aversion to innovation, a bias against creativity. So wait, hold on, Why? Joe. Hold on. In a book that's really largely about hope, you took away the uh, you took away the part about the problems. Uh, he did mention that he's a glass half empty kind of guy, did he not? <laughs> I, uh, what he didn't add is that he tends to catastrophize. Well, I'm, but I'm also a guy who loves creativity and innovation and and new thinking. So help me understand okay. how so, we're going to be able to take the lessons of this wonderful <laughs> book and really start to change this societal pattern. Well, so first of all, it is a book of hope. And it does. I did discover a lot about the innate nature of creativity and how potent it is, What how it leads to happiness. And I did discover that we oftentimes resist it. And in order to tap into it, we got to understand why we resist it. And I guess maybe the most telling study in the book is the one about toxins and poisons and vomit. And it goes like this. Um, These innovative researchers took us some study subjects 
and ask them to describe how they explicitly feel about creativity. And the study subjects were associated it with puppies and rainbows and sunshine. But then the, the researchers did a subconscious bias test, the kind of test that explores how people feel on a subconscious basis and discovered that they secretly associate creativity with toxins and vomits and poison. And you're like, well, why would that be? The reason is, and it's quite logical, that creators and creativity are disruptive. They force a change in the status quo. Creativity involves risk. By definition, you don't know if the thing's going to work out or not. So it is scary, full stop. And to tap creativity as a society or an individual means allowing for that prospect. And it it also means challenging the status quo, which is scary to people in control, to people who like things the way they are. So how do we begin to break down those old patterns to be able to help people embrace new ways of solving problems? You know, I, I tend to think going back to CBT and DBT, I think to, to my mind, and I guess I've devoted a whole career to this, um, it's, it's about reframing issues in ways that have a bigger audience involved in them, that posit the upside and diminish the risk involved in change. Sometimes we come across things that really force our hand, like COVID did, and caused us to act in very aggressive fashion and create that way. Sometimes we have looming threats like climate change that are harder to motivate us because either they're so far in the distance or they're hard to see in your day-to-day -day basis. And then sometimes leaders come around, and this is where how I'm answering your question, leaders come around and reframe issues so that they are seductive to everybody to tackle. And explain the problem in such a way that it becomes very, um, we become very eager to attack it. I think that's how it happens, through leadership and, and canny communications. Matt, you've just mentioned climate change, and we've been talking about adolescent anxiety and depression. And I think a lot of adolescents would say to you, climate change, we're not we're not looking at a world that's the same as what you all experienced, you old people. Is there you a know, connection there? I, I mean, there have been some studies, and I'll, I'll tell you that I don't really buy it. Um, and the reason I don't buy it is I think that that is one piece of information among many pieces of information that young people are grappling with. But I tend to think of anxiety and depression and self-harm and suicide as much more personal for people. So when I hear someone say, I'm harming myself because of the environment, that feels disconnected to me as I understand the science. It may be that someone feels hopeless because of a whole bunch of factors, but it's not really consistent with the complexity of the world. Think of it this way. Many, many things are better than they ever were. So you can't really point to those distant uh, experiences and tie them to deep emotional ones in a one-to-one -one relationship. So, Matt, you talk a lot about creativity in a time of chaos. And boy, are we in chaos. I mean, 
we've already mentioned COVID, but we've got the Ukraine war. We've got economic disruption. We've got climate. I mean, this is as big a time of chaos as any I can remember. And I'm just wondering, you know, what's going to come out of this? Where is going to be the next creative jump forward? What does your crystal ball tell you in terms of creativity? I love how you frame that because I think the chaos and the creativity are opposite sides of the same coin. And the reason I say that is that all these inputs swirling around us create a feeling of chaos, and they also are the inputs that allow us to create. I mean, the more information we have, the more dots there are to connect, the more remarkable ideas will come about, and the more chaotic things feel when we don't have a solution. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here because I can't prove what I'm about to say, Joe, and and uh, I do not have a crystal ball. But my sense is that what is happening is a speeding up of things, a speeding up of the challenges and of the solutions. And I think it's going to force us at some point to confront how much speed we can cope with as a society and how much we're willing to live with constant change and challenge and response. And that is going to be an interesting reckoning for this society over the next 100 or 200 years. And if I had to guess, my answer is that there will be a new way of thinking a new spiritual awakening, and I don't necessarily call this religion, but that has us rethink how we grapple with the intensity and entropy of our daily lives. That is my best guess. Well, that does sound extremely hopeful. I am wondering that <laughs> if we... It. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I really do concede it. I am a, I, I've seen us as a species looking back. Uh, I mean, I wasn't actually there. But uh, I've seen us respond, and we do it well. So I am hopeful. Well, I, I also want to get down to the micro level. I mean, you're up there at 50,000 feet, and I'm coming down to the, you know, inches. Uh, I'm coming down to grass grassroots level, and that is, what do you tell the parents and the teenagers that you have interacted with over the course of the last year with this crisis that we've been dealing with, what is the hopeful creative message for them so that what you have written about, which is on some level so scary, will also have a hopeful path forward? Well, here's the first thing, and it may be the only thing. Suicidal impulses pass. If we know anything about suicide, we understand that it is a temporary state. And if you can get through that state, and it may be a short one, you're going to live and you're going to find a different mindset and you're going to find a better way and a happier way to live. And it's true of self-harm now. And if there's something I would say, so that is the first thing. You've got to get through those moments. There are tools to do it. I implore you to look online at the, um, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it. Uh, when you, uh, your, your plan, what's your, what are the plans called? The, um, uh, there's a, there's a plan you write down when you're in crisis, go look for those things. Um, but get through the moment. Secondly, 
get through a series of moments. And there are tools that are starting to emerge, and I'm going to report on them, and society is going to respond because this is a crisis and there is hope. This is a temporary period and an imbalance neurobiologically for many young people that will, that they will get through and be on the better side, of, the other side of. I promise you that. I've been there myself, maybe not to this degree, but I had a rough set of 20s and it set me on my way to a very happy life. Matt Richtel, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you so much for having me. It really is always such a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Matt Richtel, a journalist for The New York Times. He was awarded the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting for a series on distracted driving. His most recent series in the New York Times addresses the mental health crisis affecting American teenagers. We've put links to those articles from our website. Matt Richtel has written several books, including An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System, and his most recent, Inspired, Understanding Creativity, A Journey Through Art, Science, and the Soul. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1303. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can post your comments to let us know what you think about today's interview. You could subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider, We post the show on our website on Monday morning. If you know somebody in distress, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you will also receive regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you very much for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.